<laughs> you you okay, Ryan? I got I'm, I'm a little sweaty, guys. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not feeling too great. I just uh, just got back from my <clears throat> my family's 40, 50 person uh, uh, Thanksgiving party. It was a lot of fun. Did, did you have to go with all 50 people? Oh, yes. Did, did you guys have it at church? The SCOTUS said that you could have it anywhere you want. We, we definitely we definitely went to church before. And, yes. <laughs> well, I think you should pray. Thoughts and prayers. And welcome, everyone, back to The Square Podcast. Folks, we have an absolute banger of an episode. I know I know, I say that every week, but it's always true, and especially this week. We're talking Buffalo 66 today with our special guest. I'm going to throw all the honorifics your way, Shannon. Dr. Shannon O'Sullivan, Assistant Professor of Communications at Salisbury University. Shannon, how are you doing today? I'm good. How's everyone holding up in the orange zone? <laughs> Soon to be red. Soon to be red. So we be... don't have a color-coded system, which really evokes the Department of Homeland Security and the War on Terror, vintage War on Terror days. So we right. don't have that down here in Maryland. So, But I'm keeping an eye on you all up there. But hope you stay out of the, out of the red zone. Just pulling for you. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I, I hope we get into the red zone and Tom Ridge comes. Yeah. <laughs> Resurrect Tom Ridge. Yes, Red Zone Tom Ridge. Tom Ridge just becomes mayor. He's one of the good ones. <laughs> Put the Brown administration on notice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shannon, we're here to talk today uh, about a film that I am told that you are just an expert and you are like the, the somehow you've channeled into Vincent Gallo's brain and you could just talk at length about it. So I'm so excited uh, to talk today about Buffalo 66, which is one of the most fucking insane movies I've ever seen. <laughs> it's it's 76% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. How can it not be good? It's right. It's, seven- it's still and it's funny in terms of channeling Vincent Gallo. I mean, it, it, these are some horrifying. It's a horrifying headspace to be in. Right. If you can understand his vision <laughs> of the world, especially in terms of gender relations. But it's a film that I have such a delightfully fraught relationship with. So I'm happy to talk, talk through it with you all today. Let's talk about Vincent Gatler real quick for a second. Buffalo born and bred. Um, you know, I mean, we talk about, you know, we'll talk about the movie, but it's my understanding that uh, from reading about the movie, the scenes with Angelica Houston and Ben Gazzara were actually filmed in his parents' house. Yeah, so I, I saw the in the breakdown of the filming location that was actually in Amherst, that, mm-hmm. that house, So, which is interesting. I think in his biography, it says that he, you know, grew up on the West Side, you know, children of, you know, child of Sicilian immigrants. And yeah, he has like kind of like the setup for like 
the all American narrative here, but then it just all goes slightly awry for him at some point. I don't really know <laughs> how to characterize it, but yes, he and I are both from Buffalo. So that's uh, in terms of my interest in research and media studies, a film like Buffalo 66 is pretty much right on, you know, my constellation of expertise and interest between, you know, talking about movies and then Buffalo. So it kind of can't avoid Vincent Gallo in that regard, but can I just talk about that house for a second? It had like the old tile, you know, all the uh, the 1950s kitchen and all that. Like, like, you know, it's it hadn't been changed since 66, at least mm-hmm. since, you know, his mother had that horrific event of him being born. Right. It's it, <laughs> I just it just brought me back to my childhood. It's just that that old school, not updated, like time capsule house in Amherst. I bet oh, I had yeah. a, I had I'm a, no longer living in Western New York, too. You I've developed such an appreciation for you know, Buffalo homes and the architecture. And I didn't realize quite how unique, you know, unique it was uh, when I lived there. So, but yeah, it is, it is definitely has that kind of time capsule feel. And I also feel so much of the aesthetic of the film really is very seventies to me. It just reads very seventies. And I think Buffalo in the late nineties in a lot of ways was still very seventies. So we can dive into that later, but. (laughs) No, that's a great point, Shannon. And I mean, let's talk a little bit just to frame it, I know you mentioned that uh, Gallo, uh, obviously from Buffalo, grew up on the West Side, child of immigrants. Who? How, how did we get Vincent Gallo, who, to my understanding, was a relatively, I don't know, had some buzz in the indie world, but he makes this movie where he gets Angelica Houston, uh, a hot up-and-coming Christina Ricci, and... Mickey Rourke is in this movie too. Like, who is yeah. this guy? Rosanna Arquette's in Rosanna the movie. Arquette's in the movie. Yes, right. Like, who? Is- Jan Michael Vincent. Who is this guy to get this kind of movie made? It's so strange because he's as talented as he is problematic, right? I mean, and so he was definitely involved in like you know the kind of avant-garde, you know, music and art scene, visual art scene in the '80s in Manhattan and. Yeah, I think he just, at the end of the day, I think he wrote a great script. And I think the strength of that, and also, you know, his vision of, you know, and cinematically speaking, I think that Lionsgate was just like, all right, you know, we will basically help you in the promotion process by getting this kind of star power, you know, alongside it. So in an interview he did, it was called, I believe, Art Voice back then, you know, now now the public all the shifts that have happened in uh, Buffalo alternative media, but the public uh, basically reprinted in 2015, a, an interview, I think M Faust did an interview with Vincent Gallo around the time that the film was released. So in 1998, and he talks a little bit about like the financing process and and some of the nitty gritty that I, I really didn't know about. So, I mean, it was not something where he, you know, had a lot of money that this was like a super fruitful endeavor for him by any means, but yeah, I think so. Lionsgate really hooked him up and, uh, you know, poor Christina Ricci, you know, (laughs) you know, it was her first like independent film. She was used to these like higher budget productions and yeah, we'll, we'll talk about their, (laughs) their public commentary in relation to each other shortly, but yeah. So it's like this relatively unknown, right. And it's, you know, especially as a filmmaker and he's able to get Angelica Houston to play his mother. So, but I think it's really is, it is the strength of the script really. I mean, and, it's so funny because for us as Bills fans, I'll speak for everybody. Uh, you wonder how that played to non-Bills fans, right? The this major plot point here, but 
Yeah, you mentioned that like he was involved in like the '80s Manhattan art scene, and like it's like the first film he was in was like done by like Jean Michel Basquiat. Like, like <laughs> you talk about like a, a crazy career arc. Um, Vincent Gallo, by the way, is, is 59 years old right now. So you know we're talking about he was 37 when the movie came out. Christina Ricci was like 19. She's 17, 17. actually. She was 17 in the movie? 17 oh years old, yeah. And the only reason, and I, I hate to be uh, persnickety, but just because her being 17 and being underage was uh, obviously kind of uh, magnifies some of the abusive dynamics he had with her on set. And she mentioned in an interview that it was the first time that she had been on set without her mom present. And he explicitly did not want her mom present for the shooting of this film. So, and he just has like the nastiest commentary about her too. So, and yeah, well, gender relations are, are, are a big uh, sticking point for yeah. me with Vincent Gallo. <laughs> I want to fast forward a little bit to Vincent Gallo after this movie, uh, just to kind of talk about where he ended up because this film ended up being a pretty big success. Uh, after watching it, I have my opinions as to why that might be, but it ended up being a pretty big success. And then he got to direct the Brown bunny with <laughs> Chloe Sevigny. And that was, that was one of the most controversial films of, was it 2002, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And after that, Vincent Gallo has done like stone, nothing. I think he's just been completely locked out of the film industry. Um, uh, where is he today? Like, do, can you guys speak on what's happened with our boy Vinny? Last I read was that he's really, you know, uh, kind of a hardline right wing, you know, political supporter and, you know, Trumper. And apparently on Howard Stern a few years back, he said he's one of his primary, you know, focuses is uh, real estate speculation. That's, that's what I saw. I don't know, Jim, have you gleaned any other uh, details out of his? No, I mean, status? I mean, uh, he did. He did do a modeling campaign for like a Gucci or a Versace, like. Yeah, in the like 2012 or something like that. But other than that, yeah, real estate speculation and donating to Republicans is basically what he does for a living now. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's very Trump. He's very Trumpian in that sense, right? Emerging real estate and and those and those political positions. I'm surprised he wasn't Secretary of State. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean. He could make a case that he would be one of the better ones, I think, at this right. point. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, his parents were immigrants. So, I mean, basically, he's got a leg up on pretty much the, like, as far as, like, foreign affairs compared to most of the people that were in the Trump administration. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he's just, he's interesting. So, yeah, this kind of, you know, he makes this kind of landmark independent film in 1998 makes the, what is widely regarded as one of the worst films ever made with the Brown Bunny, which... And I, and I should be fair, I'm somebody who will always say that I won't criticize something unless I've seen it. I have not seen The Brown Bunny, but I think I can safely, from a distance, agree with the consensus, the critical consensus there. I've seen it, and it's trash. It's absolute trash. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, don't don't bother seeing it, is basically my opinion. What about The Brown <laughs> Bunny was so bad? I take all the bad parts of Buffalo 66 mm-hmm. and throw them at high speed onto the screen. <laughs> well, that movie was notorious, right? For the, the blowjob scene with Chloe Sevigny. Yeah. It was, um, it was something. Even- it was, it was filmed at, uh, it was, it was shown at, uh, 
Khan and uh, people walked out during that scene. Yeah, I think it's just and I I have actually would like to hear more from uh, Chloe Sevigny about like that experience and for, you know, her career, because, yeah, the the basically the kind of common, you know, observation is just that it's just this horrifically exploitive film of of her and women writ large. And yeah, I like that that framing of it's literally all the worst you know, impulses of Buffalo 66 just laid bare on the screen. So somewhere in between Basquiat and the Brown Bunny (laughs) lies Buffalo 66. And I got to tell you, Shannon, like I, I like artsy movies. I like weird movies. I like to make sense of movies. You got to help me here. What the fuck is happening (laughs) in this movie? Well, it's funny because, and so I always like to hear about everyone's journey with Buffalo 66. So, you know, for you, Re, you said you just watched it recently for the first time, right? I, I watched it last week and then I watched it again last night. Okay. So you've given a, a little bit of digesting and Jim, how about you? How, like, what was your first? I, the fir- I first saw it, it. I first saw it in 98 and I've seen it probably a dozen times since then. Yeah, same. I would say I'm around like, yeah, the dozen count. And it was exciting, you know, in 1998, too, because, you know, now I look back and I remember my parents were Blockbuster Gold Rewards members. Yes. So I remember it coming out on VHS and it was it was a huge deal. Right. Took up multiple shelves and you know, had the like giant movie poster. I can still see it you know, in the window, can still envision it of uh, that still frame of. Gallo and Christina Ricci, I think when they're in the photo booth spanning time, right. which if you're from Buffalo and you're in a photo booth, you have to say span time, you right. know, or spanning time. You can't. I will never not <laughs> say that now. I span yeah. time. <laughs> yes. You gotta, you gotta say it. But yeah. So, and I, there was a gap there. So I, and first of all, I was 11 years old when I had first seen it and Jim, you're on the same age. I imagine, right? 11 or 12. Uh, no, I, I, I'm older cause I was a sophomore in college when it came out. Oh, really? Oh, I forget. You have such a youthful glow, Jim. Thanks. I always forget that. Appreciate that. that yeah. No, I'm 41. So I was uh, I was a sophomore in college when it came out. It's so funny because, yeah, and then this even probably to frame this too, you realize how not age appropriate this film was for me at age 11. <laughs> it was not for middle school consumption. Around, okay. uh, around age 11, I saw Silence of the Lambs for the first time. So I can understand like consuming media that's age inappropriate. Oh, absolutely. And that was a family, Silence of the Lambs, childhood favorite, family favorite. That could be another episode unto itself. But yeah, so I wouldn't say upon first viewing, I really got it. But I I think it is important to situate films or any type of popular culture in terms of the what was happening in that era, what was happening in the moment. And so if you think about Buffalo in 1998 and what was happening culturally, and, you know, this is you know, pre-social media, pre, you know, I mean, Dial-up internet was an exciting development. It had you know, recently emerged in, in my house, like the AOL dial-up. Mm-hmm. And but culturally at the time, I remember just even in terms of you know Christina Ricci too. There was it was like kind of the tail end of that heroin chic era of like women being super skinny. And I remember there was a lot of commentary on you know Christina Ricci, you know, not being super thin. And it was so that was just kind of a like a little bit of a time capsule for me too. That we hey we've we've made some improvements as a culture definitely, but I, yeah. So I had 
about a 10 year gap, I would say. So went from watching it the first time and then I saw it again in my early 20s and I've watched it about every couple of years since. And then when the quarantine kicked off in the spring, I was like, it's time to revisit this old friend. So I got to bring it back out of retirement. Awesome. Yeah. No. And for the listeners at home, uh, before we get too into it, um, if you want to pause, you can watch the movie. It was on Hulu. I think they took it off. Uh, we rented it on YouTube and then it's also on Tubi. If you have that, it's a free streaming service through Roku. It does come with ads, uh, but you can rent it on YouTube if you want, if you're so inclined, if not, we're going to talk about it anyway. Three, four bucks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's again, it's, we have a whole episode dedicated to it. So I think it's worthy of discussion. Uh, but let's start from the top. Shannon, we've got Vincent Gale. Well, first we have the picture at the beginning, what, what's going on with uh, the photo of Billy Brown? The oh, the fo which photo are you talking the about? Very be the, the very beginning where they show like the picture oh. and they have like Billy Brown, age seven. It's the very first scene in the movie where we see like, assumedly Vincent Gallo is a child. Yes, yes. And then again, the kind of innovative storytelling, right? Techniques and you know filmmaking techniques that he utilizes. So yeah, you're kind of like, you're getting this sense of, well, this has to be pretty autobiographical for Vincent Gallo, but he suggests that it's not with the exception of the portrayal of his parents, which, wow, you know, he obviously is sending a message there. Right. But yeah, it's that in his birthday, right, kind of establishing the 66 and that, you know, he's, you know, born on December 26, 27th, you know, 1966. And that's in reference to the last time the Bills won a championship would be the AFL championship in 1965. And so the crux of it is that, you know, of course, uh, his mom misses the game. And, you know, long story short, the Bills have just, you know, been championship free. Let's call it championship free since 1966. So, so it's kind of like he's a part of this cursed team's narrative, right? And I think a lot of Buffalonians have had that sense over the years that there's just a kind of a kind of curse over over the city. So from, you know, deindustrialization to wide right, it's just, it's all part of the same social fabric, which he absolutely taps into and just kind of inserts himself in that autobiographical way. So, so yeah, but it's like this, you know, kind of sweet, innocent childhood photo. And really, again, it's sort of establishing, you know, because there is this thing of like, we see Billy Brown as like this clearly emotionally stunted adult man, you know, in his 30s. But, you know, very much playing up kind of like his wounded inner child, like throughout the entire throughout the entire film. It's very I, it's very, you know, not something that you have to do deep kind of Freudian psychoanalysis with. He definitely plays with it uh, and puts it literally right at the outset. So but it's an, it's an interesting way to start a film. Definitely. You're just like, OK, that's kind of and what's so unique about it. Right. So I'm like, I can't think of other films that are quite like this. Like there are those innovative, innovative moments in it. Mm. When the juxtaposition is that it goes right from like him as a child to him being released from prison. Yes. He's at, uh, he's getting released from Gowanda. Right. Which, and it's like filming in the winter was just like chef's kiss, right? Just like, you know, Gowanda correctional facility mm -hmm. in the winter. And he's got like those striking red boots on. Right. And, you know, the kind of like the luminous colors and everything that, uh, you know, that was all very deliberate on Gallo's part was to kind of really make this really, you can see that kind of performance art, you know, visual arts, avant-garde scene kind of coming through, coming through in the film. 
So Shannon, what yeah, the- I don't miss Buffalo cold winters. Oh my God. They're, they're rough. We're, we're hardy folks. We're hardy folks. We are, we are hardy. Those red boots. I want to, I want to ask you, cause I saw that and I was like, is he going for a wizard of Oz type thing? Is that, is that <laughs> what's happening? Yeah. I don't know. It's funny. I do enjoy this kind of speculation, but you know, it's cause everything else is like, he's wearing all gray and even just, it's like overcast, you know, and Buffalo is so overcast. I right. mean, I, until I moved to other, you know, I lived in Colorado for a few years. I lived in Vermont now I'm in Maryland. Like for Buffalo, it's not so much the snow. It's not so much the cold temperatures. It really is just the lack of sunlight. It's just right. critical it's just vitamin the, D. The grayness, shortage. just the, 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 like that, like they say, like, you know, like everything's got like a, a scale of gray and Buffalo is just every scale of gray at one time. Always. <laughs> Yes. And that's like the perfect way to put it. And yeah, so the boots are just kind of like that one standout color. And yeah, I I don't really know what he's trying to necessarily establish there other than, you know, know, to kind of say, and I think red is one of the most like, you know, prominent colors within the film. It kind of recurs, but yeah, just kind of giving you that flash of color amidst like just all of this gray. Right. I mean, just from his clothing to, you know, the actual kind of architecture of the prison, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, he's out there on the bench and, you know, I just, it, it, I know for some folks from Buffalo, it's like, well, why is everyone always, you know, talking about the cold weather and, you know, highlighting, you know, all of these negative features of the city and, and, you know, of the region. And to me, it, it's like something that we should be proud of in a way. It's like, it really speaks to a kind of collective endurance, you know, that a lot of folks don't have. So I think, but, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a, a negative portrayal, but one of the only job sectors, unfortunately, is uh, prisons. So that's another thing too in the region. So there's a lot of you know, correctional facilities, but so kind of starting, starting there, right. And starting that kind of bleak scene, right. So he kind of takes us on that, on that trajectory. And it's interesting and particularly innovative moment when he's on the bench is there's kind of like that kind of flashback sequence of all the, you know, different, you know, photos of him, you know, images of him, you know, from a little bit from childhood, a little bit while he was incarcerated, you know, clearly kind of establishing that kind of introspection that he's sort of, you know, evaluating, you know, his life and what to do next. And of course, then like the first plot point is that he just needs to find a bathroom. So, right. right? (laughs) Just flat out. Right. Yeah. that, That he asked to go back inside the prison. So he can go to the bathroom is, is, I mean, it, it happens early and it might be the high comedy scene in the entire movie. Um, I mean, it's, it's not something that wouldn't be out of place in say a Matthew Barry project where like, I could see a Matt Barry thing where he's like, he's like, he just got out of prison and he's like, but I really have to go to the bathroom. Could, I, could you, could you let me back in? And, and of course they're like, no, get out of here. What, what's wrong with you? Yeah, like this is the discharge gate. And it's and it's interesting because with that kind of it just establishes that like he's just dealing with physical discomfort from the jump. Right. Mm-hmm. He's like has to go to the bathroom. He's freezing. And it's interesting to in the sense of it just seems so mundane, like having to use the bathroom. But then it sets up this whole <laughs> this whole world. But definitely uh, Billy Brown as as victim, right? <laughs> Definitely is is a as a thread throughout the throughout the entire entire film. Even when he is, you know, victimizing other people, right? right? It's still kind of kind of constantly in that in that space. But I, I thought it was fascinating. So after that he takes the bus downtown, he still hasn't he's about to pee his pants. 
and he gets down to the bus station and then, yeah, it sets up this whole thing where he's on the quest for a bathroom and it's just like, welcome to Buffalo, the place, you know, such a pile of shit that you can't even find a pot to piss in (laughs) and everybody turns you away. Right. I mean, and, and I mean, it could have, he could have very easily rectified that by like realistically, I've been inside the bus station downtown. There's a bathroom there. He doesn't, he doesn't go in there though. Well, it's closed. Remember? Right, it's that's closed. right. Yeah, it's closed. So, um, but, uh, and he, so he goes to that cafe. That he goes to yeah. the cafe. He goes, he goes to the cafe and well, he tries to pee. He tries to pee behind the car. Right. And then the lady comes up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then he goes into the cafe. Right. He goes into and he goes into that cafe and he gets a gruff you know, like Buffalo is this mix of and Buffalo is a character in this movie, right? It's it's it, Buffalo isn't just Absolutely. the the place, but it's a character in the movie. And Buffalo is this mix of it's sometimes a northeast city, it's sometimes a midwest city, depending on what you're doing. And he has a very northeastern reaction here where the guy is just like, we're fucking closed. Like, get out of here. A hundred percent. I always I'm glad you put it that way, Jim, because it is like you have that some of that like New York City, East Coast influence and some of that Midwest politeness. But it depends on right where you find yourself. And yeah, he gets that very brusque, like the bathroom's closed, right? And I love this opening scene too. And I have to note that when he's on the bus, you know, going to downtown Buffalo and you see the bus going down the Skyway, right? You got to have a Skyway shot. You know, that's like such a part of, such a part of the fabric of downtown. But there's for like a second, there's a flash of, what is um, Adolph's Tavern and the old first ward. And so my uh, dad's cousin, Michael Burns, who recently passed away, he was one of the co-owners of that bar. So just have to give a little acknowledgement to to Michael Burns. So, and just for like a second, you can see, you can see his bar. So, but yeah. And you just get like, you see all of a sudden he's in, you know, downtown Buffalo in the late nineties, which I mean, it's was a dead zone. Absolutely desolate. Right. That is a very accurate depiction. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, like I I said, like I I started working in the early 2000s, so not that far off in downtown Buffalo. And I said the safest place to be in all of West New York was like downtown Buffalo after 5 p.m. Because there was Mm -hmm. just nobody around. Like there were more people in Marilla than there were downtown (laughs) Buffalo at that time. It was it was very lit in Marilla, right? It was like, you're like, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. People at the Marilla Town Grill were just like having subs and going crazy, and <laughs> you could be in Niagara Square and be just you could just nap and nobody would ever bother you. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because people who you know inter, who are not familiar with Western New York, you would think of your downtown should be your your focal gathering place, right? And with the exception of. I know you all did an episode on old school uh, Thursday in the square, which, right, we miss it. But before, you know, pre-canal side and all of that kind of development, it just was absolutely a dead zone with some brutalist architecture sprinkled in. Right. And had that, like, very 70s feel. So, and I love it when he's, like, running down, you know, I think it's like he's right at North Division and you see that shot of what was then Marine Midland Arena. Right. Which, I don't know if this is unique to Buffalo culture, is that you continue to call a store or 
an arena or like the stadium, whatever its first name was. Like I know people still call it Rich Stadium, right? Or like Duntire Park. I right, or it's Pilot Field. Pilot Field. And, and when I yeah. worked for uh, social services and uh, I was in the Hens and Kelly building, it hadn't been fucking Hens and Kelly in my entire lifetime. <laughs> But everybody was like, oh, yeah, I know you're in the Hens and Kelly building. I'm like, yeah, whatever that means. Like, it, it was a department store that went out of business in the fucking early 70s. Right. It's up for it's up for rent again. And they're they're like, like, oh, the Hens and Kelly building. I'm like, nobody knows what that means. Like, why won't this die? Right. You're like, why won't this like practice just fade away? But yeah, I think when you're so really downtown Buffalo, late nineties, it being that desolate and it's freeze and he's trying to find a bathroom. I mean, that really was kind of, you know, the like ethos of late nineties, downtown Buffalo right Mm. there. (laughs) It really was. And so after that, he, uh, makes his way, like the restaurant is closed off to him. The owner tells him to get, get lost. And then he makes his way into this dance studio and we get the shot of, you know, they're doing, I think, what, tap dance. And mm-hmm. we see Christina Ricci. That's our first shot of Christina Ricci. And, like, again, with the acknowledgement that she's 17 years old, like, <laughs> Gallo just, like, focuses the camera on her heaving breasts. Like, that's, like, one of the first yes. shots yeah. that you see of her. So we have this young woman from the very onset of the film extremely sexualized. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's so if anyone's familiar with like film theory, there is a film scholar named Laura Mulvey, and she came up with the concept of the male gaze. So G-A-Z-E. And particularly in, you know, she calls it narrative cinema. So when you're getting really fancy and in that kind of cultural studies mode, when you talk about movies, you have to call it cinema, you know, Mm -hmm. and but sort of establishing from the jump, you know, that kind of heterosexual male perspective. And we see that showcased quite well here. And it's highly demonstrative of that. And yeah, and and he really goes after this kind of, you know, we don't get a sense that Layla, you know, she doesn't get this kind of multidimensional treatment by any means. And women in the films, so from Angelica Houston, his character as his mother, from his, you know, uh, you know, old crush played by Rosanna Arquette, women are either, they're in that kind of dichotomy of they're either angels or demons. And Layla is so angelic looking, right? I mean, she's just like, so precious. Like that's kind of like when I look at her, right. And I'm just, she's got like her blue eyeshadow on and her little outfit. And she's just like, and just very meek and just like sweet to the point that it's almost, it could be considered grating, but yeah, thus begins the kind of Stockholm syndrome trajectory we see with Layla. (laughs) So, well, and what was interesting to me is it seems like she was the only one who noticed him come in the room. Like, he comes into this dance studio. They're in the middle of a class. He kind of comes from behind weirdly. So nobody else pays attention to him. Only Layla sees him walk in the room and then he makes his way. He finally, he gets to pee. He gets to relieve himself. Almost right. Jim? Almost, <laughs> almost except that the bathroom is co-occupied. Yeah. And it is. It's, it's co-occupied and Vincent Gallo can't help but stroke his ego in this scene for oh, no reason whatsoever. 
it's it's homophobia combined with his ego stroking. Right. right? It, it's like you're like really like you have to throw in in like the opening sequence that you have a big dick, like right. purportedly have a big dick, and then you call and then you insult the other guy using you know like homophobic slurs. It's just that is Vincent Gallo right there. I mean right. that, that's I mean, the personality we're dealing with. It, it sets a tone for the entire rest of the film right there. That you know like like. Yeah, this is the he. This is the he's acting in it. He wrote it. He directed it. He produced it. And he was like, "Fuck yeah, this scene is perfect. Let's do it this way." <laughs> right. For for the listeners at home, add to the narrative. Other than he still can't pee, right? It's like he still right. can't pee. And now we know he's uh, well endowed. So okay, and a jerk, right? And a jerk. Well, for the listeners at home, if you haven't seen the movie, so basically Vincent Gallo. Uh, well, Billy Brown in the film goes into this <laughs> into this very small bathroom stall, and he is there's somebody right next to him. Another gentleman is next to him, and he's telling the guy like, "Quit looking at my dick." And the guy's just like, "I can't help it; it's so big." And that's where all the <laughs> homophobic he just just starts yelling at the guy, kicks him out of the bathroom. Notably, does not piss yet. Right. Still, no. now he can't go to the bathroom because. <laughs> Because some guy was looking at his giant Johnson, yes. which is, it is drawing out the dramatic tension. Right, right, yeah, just right. Draw, drawing it out. So now he's got to find another way to too flustered. And I mean, and now at this point, now like you know, look, I I don't know if you've ever driven from Kowanda to downtown Buffalo. It takes an hour. Mm-hmm. So however long he however long he was waiting for a bus, plus an hour from Kowanda to Buffalo. And now he's like 25 minutes into his search throughout the city of Buffalo um, for a bathroom. I mean, he's he's doing some real damage to his kidneys at this point with his holding it as long as he has. Right. It's like at this point, it's taking me. That's like the most you know surreal element almost in this film is like how long he can actually hold in his urine. I'm like, that's actually that's actually quite the feat. So that really kind of puts us in that surreal headspace. And like some of the more surrealist elements in the movie and, you know, because at points it just kind of breaks into a musical. I mean, this is right. I mean, certainly innovative, certainly remarkable. And I think that's why despite all of these problems and my frustrations with it, I still every every time I watch it, I'm like, this was worth my time. And I, I kind of hate that fact, but it's just the truth. <laughs> it just is. So he goes at this point. Uh, he goes and calls his mother. He runs into Christina Ricci's character is a real jerk to her as he asks for a quarter to call mm-hmm. his mother. And then he makes that call, uh, tells mom that, Hey, uh, I just, I just flew in and we're staying at the big fancy hotel downtown and no, sorry. You know, my wife can't make it to dinner tonight. She's sick. She's not feeling good. And then his mother over the phone harangues him to the point where he's like, all right, I'll bring, I'll wake her up. If she's sick, fine. It's your fault, but I'll bring her. Right. And then also he says, can you, I think he says, can you turn the game down at some point? Mm -hmm. Right. Like something like she's. And so at first I, and I still think of this film, we don't, I don't think it's at any point established what day of the week it is, but I always envision it as a Sunday and, but not that there's necessarily a live bills game going on as you learn, but mentally kind of puts you in that headspace of like coming over for Sunday dinner. Right. And I, and the bills game being on. Also, I know he, and understandably, the Buffalo Bills did not want any part of this film, and particularly poor Scott Norwood, which we'll get to. One of my <laughs> things that I am most aggrieved about in this film is 
uh, a repentant Scott Norwood in real life getting portrayed as this villainous <laughs> strip club owner, uh, which is, you know, you just gotta gotta roll with it. I, I actually wish that I, Scott Norwood in real life would have been a villainous strip club owner. It would have made it would have it would have made like my like middle school high school age way easier to hate him as opposed to like him just being some guy who's like I'm sorry that I just ruined your life. Yeah, <laughs> this lovely, repentant human being. And one of my jokes, too, I always say is I'm like, you know, who wasn't like partying in Tampa that week? Scott Norwood. Everyone else on the Bills, you know, team, they were they were enjoying themselves. They, they really were so Buffalo in that sense. They partied before the big game. You know, I, I just I, I love hate that, you know, but right. I just I'm like, I know Scott Norwood was like absolutely in bed by like 11 p.m., like whatever their curfew that Marv Levy maybe put out there as a that uh, Marv Levy wasn't following himself. Marv Levy is out there being slammed through tables, you know, <laughs> deep frying turkeys, lighting himself on fire. He wouldn't follow the, the curfew, but Scott Norwood absolutely like if he had to be in bed by 11, he was in bed by nine. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100 percent. He just has that like Boy Scout demeanor. And unfortunately, I hate that his worst day on the job is what he's forever known for. I always think about like, what's my worst day on the job? And it's just one of those things where I I wish we could hate him, but he's just he's just so lovely. But he's kind of a part of he's such a part of Buffalo's story. And I always say that if that kick goes right through the uprights, I'm a different person. Well, we all are. And I think right because the city's close. What's that? Because the city's closed. As I mentioned on one of our previous podcasts, as soon as the Bills win the Super Bowl or the Sabres win a Stanley Cup, everybody moves back to everybody moves to Charlotte with their family. It's it. everybody, yeah. we're, we're all done. done. We've just we put the tape around the city of Buffalo. <laughs> city's closed, folks. The bear out front should have told you, and we just all move and we live with our family in the other parts of the country. Oh yeah. One of my panics too with the Bills doing so well is I'm like, okay in relation to my job and everything. I'm like, okay, how do I make sure, you know, that I'm where I need to be if and when a kind of Super Bowl victory actually happens? Not a kind of Super Bowl victory, a Super Bowl victory. But I, I hesitate to even articulate this because it's just, again, it's got that cursed vibe. And we see that in Buffalo 66. This like everything is very, you know, sensitive. Everything's very like you can't, you know, you got to really walk on eggshells because things might not work out for you. Most likely won't. And I think that's such a part of the culture of the city, too, is absolutely rooting for the underdog. And I think in the sense of that we're you know, invited by Vincent Gallo to really empathize with Billy Brown and kind of view him as an underdog, even though <laughs> he's kidnapping a teenage girl. Right, so <laughs> right. I mean, we, we would be highly remiss if we didn't stop and pause on that for a second, because holy <laughs> shit, does he... Approach Christy after he gets off the phone with his mother. Uh, he sees Christina Ricci in the hallway, and and she's kind of look at looking at him with the doe eyes a little bit at this point, even in the film. But he says, "Oh, can I talk to you a minute?" And then just puts his hand over her mouth and abducts her and takes her out to the da- out of the dance studio and then out to her car to her car to her car. Remember, he, he takes her to her car. And it's, this is one of my, the, maybe the other like best comedy scenes in the movie. Is, is this a shifter car? I drive cars that shift themselves. I, I drive, I drive luxury cars, Cadillacs, Eldorados. 
<laughs> well, and that's again that seven. I'm like, why does this film evoke such a '70s vibe to me? And yeah, the shifter car that is a case in point, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like very that just reads very '70s to me in that entire exchange. I don't know. I, I thought and Stockholm syndrome too. Stockholm syndrome also reads very '70s to me. <laughs> for sure. Like I thought this movie was going to go a much different way than it did based on like those minutes there where she's getting abducted. Like it was, it was tense. Yeah. What, and that's interesting for me, you having viewed it for the first time recently as a fully formed adult, right? So Jim and I are like, you know, middle school, high schoolers when we first see this. Yeah. So to you, is that like a total, a totally shocking development? Absolutely. Like I, I could tell this guy was abrasive. I could tell that, you know, Clearly, everything wasn't right with Billy Brown, but then we take it to a new dimension where he's like outward because we don't know why he's in prison at this point. But you see that and you're assuming like, oh, is this guy like highly violent? Like what kind of film are we getting here where he just drags her out um, of the dance studio? And then like nobody notices Like that was the craziest part to me. Right. Like it's just like nobody notices him come in. Nobody notices. They're all so preoccupied with their dance class and being the best tap dancer that they can, which, by the way, like uh, is accurate as this thing is about Buffalo. I would love to find a place where they're offering tap dance classes downtown Buffalo. But, right, right. I, I mean, he spends so much time being like a, the authentic Buffalo experience, and there's just no fucking place in downtown Buffalo, and there hasn't been like going back to the '90s where you can just learn tap dance at like randomly on like Washington and Division. Right. Yeah, I feel like that's the another break in terms of realism with the film is <laughs> tap dancing in downtown Buffalo. And I will say in relation to. And I haven't actually seen the whole thing, but I know the movie Buffaloed, which came out in the last couple of years, did not have native Buffalonians as part of its cast. One of the things I appreciate is that Vincent Gallo really does have the Buffalo accent. Like you really hear it come through and like a, a lot of the folks he encounters, like you know, the bus driver, the guy at the bus depot, and like even the woman who tells him where the bathroom is, you know, it's like you got to say where, where, where the bathroom, you know. But I feel like right. folks who are not from Buffalo actually overemphasize the flat A. So, but yeah, right. So, but it's interesting that, okay, late 90s Buffalo, tap dancing class, no one notices this, you know, random guy come in and no one notices him kidnap a teenage girl. But again, and I, I think what's so fascinating, it's when I'm first watching this, when I'm 11 years old, I'm not like thinking, and this is again, way before we had the kind of social media activism that we have today. You know, this is pre a lot of, you know, hashtag me too. And all of these types of things. This to me was not like unusual. And I don't think it was just being in middle school. I think it was just like, Oh yeah, like this is kind of just again these kind of tropes of like how women are portrayed in film. So it has all of that baggage, and I think it's also important for us to think about in 1998. A lot of these instances leading up to the scene aren't aren't jarring to the typical viewer, right? And, and that's not to excuse them or anything like that, but just to kind of put us back in 1998 and what was kind of happening right. in relation to the usage of this language and all of this. Right. No, I mean it's 22 years ago. I mean I know it wasn't it wasn't jarring to me. Partly because, yeah, it was 1998, but also partly because, like, I had been, I, I was, like I said, I was a sophomore in college. I I knew somebody who was, like, a film buff, and they told me I should watch this movie. And yeah. uh, they told me it was, like, a comedy drama. So, right. so, like, when I saw a kidnapping happen early in the film, 
I was like, well, I guess hilarity ensues. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I I wasn't I wasn't like, oh shit, like like this guy just got out of prison. Now he's kidnapping a woman. A, a right, young you're like, woman. where's the Benny Hill music when right. he kidnaps her? Like, right, like what is happening? Right, there, there was there was no yeah, there was no fun framing. Yep, sad, sad trombone. Um, it was just it was jarring to see in 2020 to see that sort of scene. But okay, so that at that point we have the whole comedy scene where they're switching around seats in the car, and he can't get the car started. And he's talking about how he drives luxury cars. <laughs> and then we have the drive, and our boy uh, Billy finally gets to you know pee his little heart out. They drive uh, to North Buffalo. Uh, mm-hmm. Was it, it Amherst, right? Which I'm wondering while he's outside, why doesn't she just take off at that point? You know, well, like Stockholm syndrome had already set in at that point. <laughs> well, or, or or as I, I would argue that the way Vincent Gallo would sell it is Vincent Gallo would not sell it as Stockholm syndrome, but just that his raw animal magnetism right, yeah, yeah. had already attracted. <laughs> right, certainly, okay. I mean, like you know, look, you know, sh- she may not have been in the bathroom and knows that he's got a huge cock. But she just she's she's just got a feeling that maybe he does. Well, and then he finally so he finally like relieves himself, and then he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, you know, I whatever." But uh, something came over me, blah blah blah. Um, but I, I want you to do me a favor, and you know, if you do this favor, you'll be my best friend. And talks about you know bringing her over to meet his parents, and tells her that hey, you're going to be Wendy, and you know you're going to help me out here, and and we're going to get through this. Um, and then they go to the parents' house, and this is like the iconic scene, I would say, guys, in this movie. And yeah. boy, oh boy, I mean, I was the, not ready for what I saw. The, the, the iconic scene with the iconic sub scene, the 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 sub scene of the dad lip syncing to who we later find out the person singing is not Frank Sinatra, but is actually Vincent Gallo's father. Hmm. No. Yes. Wow. Oh. So, so it's amazing. The guy who Ben Gazzara playing his father lip syncs to Vincent Gallo's actual father. I had no idea. Yeah. So they, they get to, that's crazy. Just to set it up a little bit. So they get to the house. We get to the first, the first thing right before they go in, Billy breaks down crying. Like he, he can't do it. He can't go in. He asks Layla, um, to hold him before they go into the house. Yes, she is the rehabilitation center for Billy, right? right. <laughs> Emotional rehabilitation center and establishes her in this kind of sweet, nurturing Madonna type role, right? And all of a sudden, and it's interesting. So when he finally does get to relieve himself, just as a note of proximity in relation to where I grew up in North Buffalo. So that's on Wilton Parkway behind St. Joseph's uh, Collegiate Institute, SJCI. So Catholic high school deep cuts there. And so that was like my moment when I first saw the movie where I was like, Oh yeah, that's near here. And like, I feel like for a lot of folks in Buffalo, it is about that kind of location spotting. Right. But yeah. So it's just, that's such a part of the experience. And they actually premiered it at in Western New York at the North park theater on hurdle Avenue. So, and I know that they did another screening a few years back. So that would be something I would actually really love to have a theatrical experience of this film for sure, mm-hmm. especially for that lip syncing song moment. I mean, that's right. Because it's just so seemingly abrupt and random and surreal. Right. And so at that point, re as like a first time viewer, what were your thoughts at that point? So I'm a big fan of David Lynch movies 
And it definitely had a David Lynch vibe to it where mm-hmm. it felt like he was going, like he was trying to crib parts of blue velvet in, and I, blue velvet came back to me a lot um, in the sense of like, this movie felt like Vincent Gallo's attempt at like, he watched blue velvet. He saw the character of Frank Booth and he thought, man, that guy needs a sympathetic portrayal. <laughs> so I, that, it felt like, a very David Lynch esque thing for me that he would just spend, you know, three or four minutes having Ben Gazzara lip sync to who I thought was Frank Sinatra, but was his father. But it was, it was weird. It was weird. Jackie Treehorn just singing his heart out, but not singing a word. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. He is in a big Lebowski. That is Ben Gazzara, right? Yeah. That's Ben Gazzara is Jackie Treehorn. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I think of him oh, from no, Dirty bad. Dancing. I don't know. The bad guy in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> That's anyway. right. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it, it is. The, and it's funny because, yeah, it's the full duration of the It's long. It's not like this quick cutaway moment. It's like super deliberate. And, yeah, there's also a flashback. And I like how Gallo interweaves the kind of flashbacks and like his approach to doing it. And he has that flashback to his mom not having any compassion or concern about his chocolate allergy. Right, right. right. He's, <laughs> he's just eating chocolate, do- little chocolate donuts. Like, uh, like but she offers him a donut, right? She offers him a, she offers him a, a chocolate donut. And he's like, you know, I'm allergic to chocolate. And she's like, no, you're not. And he's like, and they have that flashback where he's like, my face feels funny. And he's just <laughs> like, the, there's a little kid with like a puffed up swollen face. Um, just, just going to town <laughs> chocolate donuts. <laughs> Yeah, this kind of like establishing, of course, I feel and it by no means is the father portrayed in a in a sympathetic light. I mean, and he's being totally creepy with Layla, Christina Ricci's character. Right. He's being and, he's, he's being he's he's being yeah, creepy is an understatement there. And, and yeah. but even when when Billy first opens it, when it shows up and he opens the door, he says, your son is here. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. it's not. Oh, our son is here. It's not Billy is here. Your son is here. It's really framed as the worst thing that ever happened to them was Billy, right? I mean, right. it's really basically his mere existence is just intolerable. And yeah, and it, it, it's so funny because it's got that, you know, the tension of, of course, Billy keeping up this facade that Layla is his wife and that they haven't met yet. And then she just kind of gets into these elaborate tales about <laughs> Billy's work to the point where he tells her to tell his parents that they were high school sweethearts, which is fucking insane because Vincent Gallo in this movie is being filmed. I think it was what? 39, 40 and Christina Ricci was 17. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely, it, it just, his politics do not surprise one when you really evaluate this film with these kind of lenses. You're like, okay, yeah, this actually squares pretty well with, you know, his, his political views, mm-hmm. not, and he, but at the same time, I'm like, what is redemptive about this film? What is, you know, what is so captivating? And really a lot of it is the cinematography as well. And, you know, but this is clearly his, his vantage point, clearly his perspective and it's unabashedly. So I, I think, but yeah, and that his parents are just kind of like, not even that they are buying these stories, but they're just indifferent at best, right? To anything about Billy Right, Boy. right. Angelica Houston is still like preoccupied with the Bills rerun that's on the television. So she's barely paying attention to. So like Layla could be saying, 
literally anything. And and Janet is just like, well, I'm watching the Bills game. Yeah, Super Bowl 25 is as real to her in this current moment as it was. It would have been, you know, seven years before that. And I think, again, this is the sad thing, too, of you know, the Bills, of course, I must say sad thing. I, I respect the Bills not wanting to be a part of this production. But, yeah, they, they changed Scott Norwood's name to Scott Wood. And then they just call it Buffalo or they'll say Bills. But as long as Buffalo Bills is not together, I guess it, there's no copyright infringement issue there. So something to that effect. But, yeah, the, basically it's this defining moment for her life and thus for his life that she just keeps reliving. And again, it's this idea that, you know, Billy is stunted. His mother is stunted. You know, perhaps a suggestion that Buffalo as a character in this film, that Buffalo is is really stunted at this moment because it becomes so all encompassing and defining in terms of the ethos of the city. And I think for me, it's something that I have learned to not necessarily bemoan it, but I just feel like and it's going to sound cliche, like this is a great character building moment for Buffalo. But I think that there is something about Buffalo's culture and again, Favorite tagline for Buffalo is city of no illusions. So I think that, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, to varying degrees, whether or not people in Buffalo hold on to that. But I think there is this sense of being realistic down to earth and really kind of coping with adversity and hardship. And but is it to the point that for these characters, it becomes not a growth point by any means? No, and for for sure, Shannon. And I think it was most fascinating that, we don't know that they're not watching a live game until she grabs the remote and hits the fast forward button, which <laughs> I thought was absolutely fascinating that they could have been just, you know, like we're led to believe it's a Sunday right? and they're watching a bills game. And then she hits the fast forward button through the commercials. And then you're like, Oh, where are we? Right. Like what day is this? What year is this? Like we know it's past the super bowls, but where are we? I, I wonder how autobiographical that is. Well, and the other, th- yeah, for sure, Ryan. And the other thing that struck me too is to Janice's character, like how central the bills are to her identity that she, when, when, uh, Wendy Layla, um, asks to see photos of Billy, the first thing Billy's mother does is get a scrapbook of pictures of her with <laughs> all these bills players and the bills caterer at one point she has a photo of. Yeah. It's, and it's so, it's such a parody too of how central the Buffalo bills are to social life in Western New York. And it's like, obviously to the, to the extreme. And, but I wouldn't, Vincent Gallo does not strike me as a bills fan. Now he doesn't really comment on that explicitly that I've seen, but he's not somebody who's like, to me in any way, not just in the film. And that's the tough thing. How do we separate the creator from, from their work here? But he doesn't strike me as a, as a real bills head. You know, he's not a bills mafia supporter member, however you want to characterize. He might've been had Donald Trump been successful in buying the team. Oh my God. I know. And that's, and this is like another thing, right? That Buffalo kind of gets, I've seen things blaming Buffalo, right? If only Donald Trump could have bought the Buffalo bills, you know, he would have become president, right? It's something that kind of hangs over the city. And, but so I think that that it's such a part of the kind of you know culture here and yeah, that she's just like the extreme end of that. Like, are we all just reliving, you know, that day in January, 1991 on loop forever, right? It's our own kind of personal hell. Right. But we're, we're January 91 yeah. or January 66, right? Like, you know, 
um, you know, how much of yeah. uh, Vincent Gallo's personal Republicanism is because he's just <laughs> loves Jack Kemp. <laughs> yes. It's like, he's like, you know what? Jack Kemp just did it for him. Yeah, right, yeah. And that was it. He was, he was my favorite HUD secretary of all time. And <laughs> I've got a list of them and it's it, Jack Kemp's number one. Oh man. Cause I'm trying to think what were Jack Kemp's years as quarterback? Does anyone know? I'm like, oh, I should God. look up my smartphone. It was like in the sixties. I, yeah, he was he was right. definitely quarterback during those AFL championship years. Okay, that was him. Yeah. So I did not know he was HUD secretary as well. I did not know that <laughs> at some point. Wow. Yeah, he was HUD secretary under Reagan, I believe. Oh wow. So, yeah, I it would surprise me zero percent if there was some kind of personal connection between Vincent Gallo and Jack Kemp. It just it aligns perfectly with what we know about him. So before we move forward with this, um we, we do get that scene that that key flashback scene, we find out that the reason Billy's in jail. So uh, I, I want to talk about this, uh, not not to go too long on it, but we do find out that Billy actually bet uh, 10 large on the Bills to win the Super Bowl in 91. That's too much, Billy. That's too much, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we take a drink break first before we get into this? Sure. Let's take a drink break. Baby, when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to clown. I don't care what the people's thinking. I ain't drunk. I'm just drinking. Set them up. Another round. Set them up. Another round. Set em up. Another round. One more round. Okay, we're back from the drink break. Uh, we are all refreshed, I think, here. So... We left off talking about Billy um, basically doing a bid. We find out why he was in jail at the beginning is that he bet $10,000 on the Buffalo Bills. They lost the Super Bowl, and he made that bet to a mobster played by Mickey Rourke who tells him he has to take the fall. Um, not really sure what exactly for, but then it leads us to this crazy flashback prison scene where Billy's being sentenced in the court to five years, uh, no parole. And like, it cuts to the judge's face. And then it cuts to Billy's face his, his lawyer's face. We even get Abraham Lincoln at one point. Um, so yeah, really weird cinematography, um, with that. And then, and then, uh, they, they leave the parents house anything I'm missing here, guys. No, I think I think it's well covered in Mickey Rourke being such a surprise there and such a great cameo role. And I didn't realize it was Mickey Rourke until one of my more recent viewings as an adult. So I was like, oh, my God, that's 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 Mickey Rourke. There's the wrestler. Well, right? there yeah, he is. but well, this this was pre like Mickey Rourke, like career reclamation. Right. Like this is 1998. Mm -hmm. Like Mickey Rourke was as opposed to Angelica Houston, who was like still like, you know, a known entity. Or Christina Ricci, who was an up and comer, um, Mickey Rourke was like he. People knew him, but he was a joke at the time. Like he was just kind of like on the nothingness hill, and um, he gets this little scene, which he chews the scenery out of it like crazy. Um, but I mean, uh, he really. He, I mean, he does a good job with the shortened amount of time he's on screen. 
Yeah, absolutely. Very believable mobster. Not a stretch to see someone who looks like that being in that you know position of you're going to take the fall, right? You know, very intimidating, right. right? And so, so yeah, he bets ten large on you know the uh, Bills Super Bowl win. I forget what the point spread is. I don't know. If that's even detailed in there. But suffice it to say, Scott Norwood is to, you know misses the kick wide right is to blame. And now, of course, he can't pay up, so he has to you know, serve a five-year prison sentence. And I don't think it is established what crime he falls for, though, like what he takes the fall for. Well, Not no- that I recall. Notably, he doesn't, he doesn't bet the spread. He bets on the Bills to win. Billy, took the, to mon- win. Billy okay. took the money line. So he said, no, the Bills are going to win. So mm-hmm. it, it was uh, especially painful watching – getting that scene again where we see Scott Wood in the film miss the kick and also seeing Billy just, you know, put himself in a world of shit. (laughs) And, you know, quick plug for Scott Norwood too, in that he's prominently featured in the 30 for 34 falls of Buffalo about the Bills Super Bowl run. And this is quite the weight that he carries. And I, I mean, we might say rightfully so, but I, I, I could imagine just the inner turmoil that he has wrestled with for these past 20 plus years, almost, we're getting close to 30 years now, which is disturbing, a disturbing point to make. But I, I can only imagine what his reaction would be to this, to this film, this poor, this poor guy, right? I mean, it's just, I know everyone says he had one job, but I mean, it's funny, my uh, one of my uncles, Michael Scott, who passed away a few years ago, he can recall like specific missed tackles in Super Bowl 25. Like that's how vivid it is was for him. Right. So he there was a lot of uh, blame to be to be placed across uh, both sides of the ball, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, so that's so we get the we finally get the sense of what has you know brought Billy, you know, to prison. Again, always Billy, Billy as victim. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Just, you know, made a bad decision, and and here we are. So, well, and at that point too, we realize that Billy has decided to. He starts to get the inkling that I'm going to kill Scott Wood. I think mm-hmm. that's where we see the seeds of that. Because at that point, then we have an extended car ride scene where you know, and, and fascinating to me, by the way, of where the the ride takes them because they go from North Buffalo, um, you know, Amherst area or whatever it is. And they make the ride to Lackawanna. So it's fascinating. Like the trajectory of places because clearly Gallo made Buffalo such a, a key plot point of this movie that to the point it's almost biographical in a way, but we make a trip. We're going from North to South. Um, we're going first to South Buffalo and we go to Recchio's, Bowling alley. That's the scene where we have, um, you know, we get Billy, where the the bowling alley owner re- remembers Billy, and oh yeah, Billy, I, I paid your dues to the American Bowling Association. <laughs> right, I kept your locker for you. <laughs> like, what kind of like, how good just, of a bowler just must a devoted you devoted friend? You know, how good of a bowler must you be for the for your bowling alley to be like, oh, I kept your locker for you, even though you went to prison. I bet I you OJ Simpson uniquely Buffalo in so many ways. Like I, I, I didn't get that sense until again, I left Buffalo and lived in other States that Buffalo champions bowling like few cities do. Absolutely. No. And what was fascinating with that? I mean, there's a few things, but 
one, just want to shout out Recchio's real quick because I'm from South Buffalo and I actually went to that bowling alley when I was a kid. So it was wild to see it on film. Uh, but the second thing is that like, yeah, to your point, Shannon, yeah, Buffalo, nobody else does bowling. Like it's everywhere. And right, the, it's we, bu- Buffalo has the most bowling alleys per capita. Even of, still, even still, even still, even bowling still, alleys have closed. Uh, even yeah. still, it has the most bowling alleys per capita of any city. And I know that because my my grandfather, my eighty three year old grandfather, he wasn't eighty three at the time; he was in his fifties. Bowled a three hundred when he was in Charlotte, and when he got a perfect score, like the Charlotte paper, this is Charlotte was much smaller. This is like in the eighties. So, like, they just needed content. So they came and interviewed him for the newspaper, for the Charlotte Observer. And, like, they're like, do you have anything you want to talk to us about bowling? Like, any bowling stats or facts? And he was like, yeah, do you know uh, Buffalo, where I'm from, has the most bowling alleys per capita? And they were like, shit, yeah, we can't wait to put that in the newspaper. <laughs> Headline news. And right, yeah. Especially as so many, you know, Buffalo expats found themselves in Charlotte. So it's like your grandpa. And yeah, that I, it's just, it's something again, that I did not have an appreciation for as being unique to Buffalo culture. Again, having this kind of weird, like you said, Northeast Midwest crossover culture plus bowling and throw in Dingus day and then, you know, swish it around with some, uh, right, right, right. Add a couple St. Patrick's day parades. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I actually was recalling the other day I was at the, 2011 St. Patrick's Day in Buffalo, and Chuck Schumer was marching down Delaware Avenue, and he had a sign that said, Chuck Schumer supports the Irish, and I was stone cold sober at this point, I I truly was, but I felt the need to yell at uh, the senior senator from New York. And so it said, Chuck Schumer, Schumer supports the Irish. And I yelled twice. I said, stop supporting Wall Street. Stop supporting <laughs> Wall Street. And, you know, I felt like I, in one small way, made my voice heard. Yeah. So that was my, uh, you know, politics at the St. Patrick's Day parade moment. But, yeah, so it's like you kind of like swish around. There's a lot of, you know, obviously ethnic Catholic cultures in Western New York. And it's just it's it's a unique place in a lot of ways. And And I say that from just purely observational. Of course, I have, you know, a bias toward my hometown, but I, I would say it's by, by comparison, quite unique. So mm-hmm. especially for a lot of other kind of Rust Belt cities too, I would say. For sure. No, I mean, and this movie is fascinating is that, and that like Billy was just to your point that we are just such a, like a mix of ethnicities. Billy is notably like devoid of any kind of stated ethnicity, right? Like he, he's Billy Brown, um, nothing to glean ethnically here, and it's not portrayed in the film. Even though Vincent Gallo is the son of, uh, and it can't Italian look immigrants. more Italian if you tried. I know. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, and even like the fighting at the dinner table too. I was just like, oh, this kind of warms my heart a little bit. This is some nice memories here. <laughs> let's talk about. Let's talk about. Uh, we, we we I mentioned him earlier. Why well, uh, alluded to him earlier when I said that's too much, Billy? But let's talk about Goon and Goon's role in this film. Or Rocky, as he wants to be known as. Wait, so so now because you're catching me off guard because I have not rewatched it that recently. So contextualize oh, him a little bit for I, I me got, and the listeners. Goon, yeah, Goon is is Billy's friend from high school. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and you know Billy calls him, 
And, and he's not wearing a shirt, right? I remember he's shirtless no, he, on the phone. Yeah, he, he's, he's shirtless on the phone, and uh, the when we see him in the flashback when Billy bets the ten large on the Bills game. He's not shirtless, but his stomach is showing. No matter what's going on, Goon's stomach is showing all the time. Yes. Um, and we just get like, and and Billy berates him on the phone. Yeah, super uh, super nasty to his only friend in the world. His, right? his only I mean, friend, his own <laughs> besides the bowling alley owner, and apparently Layla, his only uh, <laughs> like he's got limited amount of friends. Uh, I mean, because his parents clearly don't care about him. No, and I remember it was funny because of his uh, clearly goon has the like drinking town with a sports problem figure with his gut always, (laughs) always on display. But I remember seeing that. And of course, my dad, in reference to his brother, Murph, my uncle Murph, he goes, ah, it looks like Murph. Like we all know a guy who looks like that, (laughs) whether he's in your family or not. That's a that's a Buffalo archetype. Right. I mean, like, like. We don't know for sure that Goon's mattress is right on is on a box spring that's right on the floor with no bed frame, but it it, it certainly is. There's no way he has a bed a frame. We, there's no way he owns a bed frame. He may have a box spring. If he does, that's on the floor and the mattress on top of it, or maybe it just goes straight to mattress. Well, yeah. And yeah. also surrounded by birds at one point when they when Billy calls him, he's got all these fu- or birds and like um, there's like a gerbil and a hamster. So, no, I think there was a ferret, which is incredibly late 90s. Yes. Ferret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What, what happened to ferrets? Why? What was unique about ferrets in the late 90s? That was like the pet to have. That that was the pet. No, it was. It was super trendy to have. And now if you know anybody who has a ferret, you're like, what a weirdo. What I what a strange right. human being, you know? Like it's don't don't we make coats out of them? Like it's like a, it's like somebody owned a mink. <laughs> well, yeah, it's weird because and with that you know with Goon too, it's like okay, his only friend in the world who is you know not uh, not very sharp, not quite bright, and just in another context because again, this film really kind of plays with and I think straddles a lot of different genres. You're like, okay, I can see the comedy element here with him, but also like his living space and just everything about it also screams possibly low key serial killer as well, right? Not the most astute one, but <laughs> right. I mean, it, but it like it. It's only comedy in sense of like if you think that like laughing at lower class people, right, is is comedy. If you think that like laughing at somebody who's like down on luck and struggling. For no reason other than that, like they're poor and you know like lower IQ, like that's enough to laugh at somebody. Then it's comedy. <laughs> it, if you're like, no, those are people too, and you're like, I guess you're missing the joke. Well, goon, <laughs> goon or, or Rocky, as he says, he prefers to be called when when Billy oh, calls right. him when he gets out of jail. I mean, he's fascinating on a couple different levels. One, he is the one who helps keep up. Billy's facade to his parents that he is a success right? because he goes to jail and he has goon send the letters to his parents, um, notably puts the month that they need to be sent on. And, you know, Billy goes into great pains to explain that you send the, the letter that says June on it in June. Mm-hmm. Um, so goon, even though Billy doesn't care or, Billy has some kind of hatred for his parents. Clearly he's still very vested in keeping up 
that facade and goon is the one who you know does that for him while he's in prison um you know the other thing is their relationship like goon was the one who was there who tells him throughout the film like don't do bad things mm-hmm. don't do evil things like even when billy was putting that bet on the bills game he said billy that's too much don't do this he's almost like this moral you know voice this jiminy cricket type voice yeah, he is his conscience and he's a loyal friend. And yeah, as far as elements of classism with Vincent Gallo and in that interview I had mentioned earlier, earlier uh, that was you know reprinted in the public, he had pretty classist things to say about Western New York and everyone's personal presentation, right? As far as like, he's like, why doesn't anyone have a decent winter coat? Why people, you know, in Minnesota, they have this and that. It's like, okay, well, right. Well, answer your own question. Like, you know, build upon that premise a little bit. Why, why is that? Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. but, and I think, you know, Goon's character isn't really framed as comic relief or anything like that. I think he really, you know, depending on who the audience is, which is, with any kind of analysis like this, any kind of breakdown, it's you always think about the viewer's you know position in relation to all these you know social categories and whatnot. But I think generally, as far as what we can surmise as Gallo's intention is that he is one of the only people that has been loyal to Billy and is kind of you know. But another thing, and I'm just thinking about the scene of when he's you know providing instructions to Goon that makes the dialogue unique is that Gallo is constantly repeating himself in this like nasty, abrupt way. Right. And we see him obviously in the photo booth scene, the kind of, you know, noted photo booth scene where he's saying, you know, we span time, we span time. He's just always, you know, that's kind of unique about the way in which he communicates. It's super repetitive as though he feels like he is constantly unheard, which I think we could all, we could all say that with his relationship with his parents and you'll read to your point that he is, invested in maintaining that facade it's the idea that he has these parent figures who have neglected him emotionally to put it mildly but he you, you're still so defined by that relationship with your primary caregivers right and so he still cares about their opinion it's almost it's impossible to get away from and i think that that's one of the more universal themes of the film is that it is impossible to completely dislodge your self-concept from your parents view of you i mean it's just we all wish we could write to varying degrees. And I think that, so that's like the degree of universality. I think that makes Billy's character sympathetic and relatable. But again, he's not somebody who's viewing himself as accountable for a lot of his own actions necessarily, but, and especially as it relates to his treatment of a teenage girl that he kidnapped. So, (laughs) so I just, it's, it's worth underlining as, as we, throughout this discussion. Right. And and when we're at the bowling alley, um, we get that very strange dance scene. Yes. And arguably some people view that as one of the most famous scenes of the film. Yeah. I mean, I think it is actually one of the most famous scenes of the film. Um, because like, it just, it seems like Vincent Gallo was like, I want to do a f- scene where she tap dances and there's a light on her. It's a little bit Lynchian. It is a little bit Lynchian. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, agree. I haven't seen as much Lynch as you guys have. Um, I've seen more John Lynch than David Lynch. Uh, <laughs> I watched Twin Peaks, and so I, I definitely see the Lynchian element there. But that's like my 
David Lynch viewings are quite restricted, but uh, in that sense, but yeah. And it's right. What is he showcasing there again? Is it kind of a showcase of obviously the female body? That's definitely at yeah. work again, Laura Mulvey's male gaze, highly relevant in this context. It's just the quintessential example of that. We're getting his perspective and again, kind of viewing her as this like very kind of dainty and angelic. And, and of course he's just continually abusive and nasty to her. And as a note too, on this is that she, so I guess in the interviews that she was doing, you know, back in the late nineties about this film, she, so one of the things that I guess to kind of make things seem relatively copacetic and there's nothing but bad blood between them now. And of course, cause he's continued to trash her in interviews. He's even said that Christina Ricci was his puppet and that she just, you know, she can't improvise, you know, she can't do that. Like just so degrading in his treatment of her and to this, you know, even into this decade when discussing the film. But uh, so, yeah, but she had one of the kind of veneer about this was at the time was, oh, well, he was just kind of into method acting and he really wanted to replicate Billy's character and behavior in his treatment of real life Christina Ricci. So that was what they framed it as, you know, when they were doing press for the film, they were saying, oh, yeah, like, He's abrasive and difficult, but he's just really trying to capture Billy's character and play that role faithfully. So that was kind of what he used to sort of mask that. But I I just think that that's how he is. I think that that's like not like those aspects of Billy's character. I think that it's not him engaging in method acting. I think that that's just Vincent Gallo and how he how he treats how he treats women. So and I think based upon the brown bunny and again, didn't see it, but. That's not surprising anyone. Well, no, uh, uh, no, I, I would agree that like it, I don't think he's acting at all in mm-hmm. in Buffalo sixty six. He's just being him, who happens to be an asshole. Yes, right, <laughs> right. So you know, as far as actual acting, you know, I think he's just he's just being who he is. So it's not like a huge feat for him. But but again, and he's like this talented musician. Like he is a talented artist and filmmaker and all and. So he's as talented as he is an asshole. And that's why we're still talking about him. And he just loves it. And that's like something I have to live with that contradiction. Unfortunately. <laughs> well, and that scene notably too. I mean, we talked about how Christina Ricci, how Layla gets framed as this angelic character. And so the scene in the bowling alley where out of nowhere, apropos of nothing, the lights dim down, she starts twirling around a pole in the bowling alley. And then uh, King Crimson's moon child, starts playing and you know it's a song about this divine moon child woman and and the lights are just framed on her i mean it's really fucking weird and then (laughs) it's over and then like nobody acknowledges it It's just like at one point billy tells her you know quit dancing right and that's (laughs) it right right there's kind of ruptures in the film of like you get into this kind of surreal space and all of a sudden you're just brought back and as if nothing ever happened and he's back to, right. He's, he's idolizing her and, and there's that, you know, register of it being this kind of idealization of, you know, her, of course, physical attributes and things like that. And then just, you know, being really nasty to her and seemingly continually talking about this girl named Wendy. And we actually do see in the bowling alley, we see a picture of Wendy of Rosanna Arquette in his locker. Right. So it's kind right. of, you know, he, and he even says, you know, uh, tell him your name's Wendy, all of this stuff. Right. So and then that's that's just one of my favorite scenes in this film is Rosanna Arquette humiliating him 
at what was then a Denny's. So right. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but. <laughs> well, no. So at that point we, we, uh, you know, see that Billy then decides to, he calls the strip club, uh, tries to find Scott Woods whereabouts. If he's going to be there at a certain time, decides he's going to kill Scott Wood. Uh, at this point, they then Billy and Layla go and, and look to book a, uh, a night at a motel. Um, just an interesting tidbit with that is that when Billy calls, he calls the, uh, the operator and they put him through to uh, Scott Woods club that the address they're given is Niagara and hurdle, which it ends up being actually solid gold um, strip club out in Hamburg. But I just thought that was fascinating that, you know, again, Buffalo geography wise that we're going from North to South, but notably he puts this place, at the intersection of Niagara and Hurdle, which I, I thought was kind of interesting and a little weird, but. Uh, right. Especially in the sense that nothing here is done without intention there. Everything is quite deliberate. And I would say the interesting thing about for you know folks who are outside of Western New York, the North town, South towns divide is significant. And to the point that I remember I was running the, uh, the bills do a 5k. It's called like the 50 yard finish every June and I was there five years ago and we were like doing like group stretching beforehand. And all of a sudden the guy leading the stretches goes, make sure that they can hear you all the way up in the North towns. Like it's absolutely this strange thing. And re obviously, and you know, Jim as well, you know, South towns familiar, obviously it's interesting because for folks, especially South Buffalo, it's like they don't go to North Buffalo and vice versa. Like there's this kind you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of tensions therein, needless to say. Yeah, for sure. And from there, um, you know, the scene where they they then drive out to to Hamburg and they get the they get the motel room. Um thirty dollars was it thirty four dollars a night? Thirty four, I think, right? Thirty five bucks a night for a, a motel room. Um we then get the really weird sort of you know, Billy takes a bath. Right. Mm-hmm. And Layla wants with to with his clothes him. on. With his clothes on. <laughs> He finally gets right. to notably. He finally gets to pee again. By the way, which I, I think he said he had to pee. Um, but the, the yeah, the whole scene with the Denny's. I don't. I can't remember if that's before or after that. They go to the Denny's and he sees whatever. A, a lot of weird stuff happens. I'm not glossing over it. If you want to watch it, uh, you should just to see some of the batshit insane characterization stuff that Vincent Gallo does. By the way, the 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 um the guy at Denny's who uh, who greets them and seats them. Mm-hmm. Wearing a full suit. Right. Where right. do you see that at Denny's <laughs> right. anymore? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe a Perkins, but yeah, definitely maybe. not a Denny's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. That's like Bob Evans level right there. You can't just, <laughs> can't just have the, the suit at the Denny's. Yeah. Well, so, and it was fascinating to me because we didn't eat out at restaurants a ton when I was a kid. And one time my dad was like, we're going to Denny's. And it was that Denny's on Niagara Falls Boulevard, which is now El Palenque. I hope it's still up and running despite all the COVID restrictions. Well, you know, legally running, you know what I mean? See, you have right. to be so careful. I'm afraid King Cuomo is going to come out of the, like, right. he's gonna, and be like <laughs> he's going to drive down to Maryland and get you. Yeah, He's going to get me. I know he's always, he's always watching. He's always with us. He surveils us. But anyway, but yeah, it's, so I remember going in with my dad and my brother 
this was in the early 90s, so Super Bowl era, Bill's Super Bowl era, and it was smoking or non-smoking, and I loved, as a child, loved sitting in the smoking section, loved secondhand smoke, and I'm saying that unironically, I was a big fan, so I'm not a smoker today, but so whenever I see that Denny's scene, I'm like, oh my God, you know, it just, it all comes uh, flooding back in, so and kind of... Yeah, that makes me think of the, the last restaurant I can remember going to when they had like smoking versus non-smoking sections in New York State was Holiday Showcase. Ooh. And Holiday Showcase, and I remember, and I and I sat in both the non-smoking and the smoking section. I preferred the smoking <laughs> section. But right, I, there's I, something about it. Oh yeah, I mean, there's something there's something more like real, like that really ties you back into like other times by sitting in a smoking section. Yeah, there's just an there's an element of glamour to that kind of public health problem. I don't know why there's just there just is. So yeah, so when and then yeah, so he finally sees and and again in this build up, he's being increasingly cruel to to Christina Ricci's character to Layla and she is just getting sweeter and more patient and she just wants to cuddle with him and hold him, right? And nurture him and it's very transparent that he clearly wants that kind of mother figure and nurturing. So that's right. not a stretch by any, oh, by we, any means. And, you know, we did, we did skip over real quick. Uh, the, the, that famous scene in the bowling alley that we need to talk about where they do take the uh, pictures. Where they, they span time, span, span time. time. True. And, and, and she's making funny faces at first. He's like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. And he's so, and she's making these and she's like so adorable and right. precious. And he's like, you know, and he just wants these straight, faced photos and he goes these are for my parents you know he does this is for my parents you know, he's like right. just you know act like yeah it's just a very and he does a lot of that repetitive and the concept of span he's like you know we span time you know i that is one this of the best lines in the movie i've never heard anybody say span time before that <sighs> or since unless you're quoting that directly right no I, I i yeah i mean i say span time a bunch and i'm only quoting that movie and if somebody gets my reference Fine. If not, eventually they will, hopefully. And I would say it was interesting when he said, like, now, I, now I wasted $2. And it's so funny because $2 in 1998, actually, that's, that's, that's sizable, right? That's, that's frustrating. And I would say that the prices of photo booths, they don't appear to have gone up. I think Frizzy's on Allen in non-COVID times. I think it's still about a dollar or two for your, for your photo booth For your photos. strip of photos, yeah. What's what's fascinating here? So this is as we move towards the buildup where uh, Billy is clearly intent on you know killing Scott Wood. He says, "Yeah, you know, I'm gonna kill that guy. He ruined my life." And it's just it's so fascinating as the meta commentary that we're looking on it, like how Vincent Gallo clearly views people from Buffalo. How we again we talked about the relationship with football, but. To, to the point of like obsession, like I'm going to like somehow I'm, he says earlier in the film that shows him while he's still in jail, like I'm going to, I'm going to kill him and then I'm going to kill myself because I have nothing else to, you know, I, I don't want to be back in this place. And it's just like the, the narrative there where like Buffalo, we're, we're so obsessed with this. Like we, we've identified with this past grievance, like this this monumentally terrible event in our history has defined us to the point where we want to go and kill it. Like literally like this is, this will free us from this kind of trap that we're in. Well, And, and I, I, I think that's where like, you know, Buffalo as a character comes in 
And, you know, he moved to New York in the 80s and he got involved in the art scene and he, and he became a model. And, you know, Buffalo's always been this albatross hanging around Vincent Gallo's neck. And I think that, you know, this movie was for him a way to try to kill Buffalo in his history. And move I, on I would it. agree with that. I would agree with that. And I think for a lot of folks who are artists and clearly somebody like Vincent Gallo wants to associate himself with high art. There's nothing pedestrian about his interests, I would say, in, in that in that vein. But he in the interview that was reprinted in the public about five years ago, he mentioned that he had hardly ever even come back to Buffalo to visit. We all know that New York City to Buffalo, it's not that hard of a trip to make. Clearly, it's he is kind of trying to disavow this part of himself. And I think a lot of folks who are artists from Buffalo, I think that there's because of the sports culture. And it's funny, I feel like for somebody like Vincent Gallo, he's not going to fit in in a lot of the Buffalo sports culture in the conventional sense. But he found a toxic masculinity all his own. Right. When he actually decided to to go to the New York City art scene. But I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about the sports culture in Buffalo and, and especially with the Bills, because the Bills, it's like part of being in Buffalo is that everyone is a Bills fan, regardless of for the you know broad brush here. But I think it's safe to say that it's this one unifying dimension of the city across social divisions based upon race, ethnicity, class, sexual orientation. Everyone is like at the end of the day, still a Bills fan to some degree. So, so yeah, I think it's, you can't have this characterization of killing Scott Norwood without then jumping to kind of killing, killing your Buffalo past, so to speak. Clearly something he wants to distance himself from. And, but now, now we've claimed his movie now, now it's ours. So, right. (laughs) So yeah, at this point we're moving to where I, I think we talked a little bit about the, um, the the hotel scene where <laughs> you have Vincent Gallo's uh, he takes a bath he and you know Layla says oh I'm cold I want to get in the bathtub with you um, he keeps refusing which again knowing that she's fucking seventeen like I would hope so but eventually she insists her way into the bathtub it's it's very strange um, a series of events there but then we do get to the point where. It's 2 a.m. He realizes that Scott Wood is going to be back at the the strip club. And so he leaves and he goes to the club. He's got his gun um, that he took from his locker at the bowling alley. He takes his gun. He's going. He's going to kill Scott Wood. And, you know, we walk into it takes us to the strip club and we see the first thing we walk in. We just see like topless women and, and this garish lights and. How about you? Like, for me, it was just like this was probably the most impressive sequence in the film Um, inside the strip club. The mixture of lights and music and sound would just, you know, everything else in this movie I have some reservations about. But the strip club scene, this last like 10 minutes or so, really kind of hooked me with that. It's so well shot and extremely memorable, of course. But yeah, everything about the camera angles, the editing, just how everything is put together is like I keep coming back to. It's unique. It's innovative. It's it's these kind of like moving parts that make Buffalo 66 one of the highest rated and ranked independent films of all time. And I think especially especially that sequence is just it's it's so 
it's so uh, enthralling, I think, to the viewer. And, you know, right before he leaves, of course, and it's important in this motel scene, we see that, you know, Christina Ricci, clearly in love, right? <laughs> clearly in love. And, and, he, and he is kind of like acquiescing, right? He's like, I guess I love you too. I guess, right. I guess I won't, you know. But it's kind of this thing of like, he's leaving. She knows he's probably not going to come back. And of course, in prior to the motel scene, we see, you know, Rosanna Arquette, we find out that she's Wendy and that they were never together, that he just had this kind of stalkerish, sad obsession with her. And that's a great scene where she's with her, you know, her current partner and she just, you know, humiliates him. And obviously I have a smile across my face because I enjoyed that scene so much just to get Rosanna Arquette to do that was great. So, yeah, so it's kind of building up to this. So, again, more, you know, subtle indignities for him that just are, you know, kind of driving him to this point. And at no point, I mean, as you're watching it, and I remember the first time as I watched it, we're assuming that this is what unfolds, that this is what happens to his character. Right. And that Scott Wood uh, faces his his demise as, and again, of course the, and again, feels so seventies to me, everything about it, you know, in terms of like the topless dancers and every, it just has that kind of, kind of feel to it, which I think in terms of kind of a Quentin Tarantino too, had that kind of seventies pastiche thing going on also in the nineties. So I think between David Lynch, we can see the kind of influences there, but at the same time, it is still uniquely uniquely his own and again it's surprising that vincent gallo didn't become the guy after this especially but again his personality foiled him quite a bit but especially that that kind of climactic what we think of as this climactic scene of him killing scott wood in the topless bar that he owns so solid gold is it called or what is it called so, it's got in the movie <laughs> yeah in, in real life it, it was solid gold and then eventually became 24 carat uh, before okay. I think it permanently closed a few years back. Right, like you don't know, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, right? Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's so funny because part of the culture in Buffalo, too, is like there was the Colony. Colony Lounge is still there. And yep. growing up in North Buffalo, that was always a, a, a site of controversy about it being so close to schools <laughs> and a residential area. But there were never really any problems problems with, uh, with anything happening there. So, but as far as anything kind of spilling out into the neighborhood, you know, everyone tries to keep it pretty sex positive in North Buffalo. I would say it's generally the vibe or, you know, championing and supporting sex workers. Right. All right. So I just can't help but say these things in relation to a Vincent Gallo film. Cause he would hate everything I'm saying. Right. No, it's, it's, it's it, so it absolutely would despise everything that we've said so far. So, which is, perfect. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of what, but again, it's, that's kind of like what he likes to generate, I think. So um, we're kind of, we're kind of giving him what he wants a little bit, but, but yeah, but so when this scene happens, I think for, and I don't know, Ree, if that's how you felt, you were like, okay, this is how it ends. Kind of like, this is, he fulfills this kind of revenge fantasy. Yes. So <laughs> I, I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, we're going for what now is a trope in a way, right? Where it's just like, okay, yes, he's going to fulfill, like he's this dark anti-hero and he is fulfilling his mission and then you know he's going to kill scott wood and then he's going to kill himself and we get the scene where he's pointing the gun and you know there's scott wood who again looks like a 50 something year old man even though canonically in the film at this point should have been like i don't know like somewhere in his 30s right he, the actor portraying yeah. him is like this fat guy shirtless save for a bow tie around his neck balding like surrounded by naked women partying and and here comes you know billy pointing his little pistol at him 
and we just get like the dramatic pause and then he kind of flips his hair and then he, <laughs> and then they have the scene where he shoots the bullet and you know then he like puts it to his own face and then we get the freeze part of it which was i, I and i thought that's where it was going to end yeah, and I, I remember first seeing that too and just being like, okay, that's it, right? We don't get that sense that, oh, this is actually a, you know, a dream sequence. So it actually, it doesn't unfold this way. But yeah, it's so arresting, that moment of just like seeing his face, you know, and just it's horrifyingly violent. And, but yeah, making that like a still frame is, it's absolutely powerful. And as as an audience, you're sort of just in shock that he actually, that he actually did it. And knowing Billy that's the thing is we've seen him, you know, basically have a proclivity for, you know, violent acts and abuse. And it, it, to us it, at this point as the viewer, we think this is like the natural and inevitable end to this, you know, character arc is he absolutely would go out this way, but he surprises us. So there's that, there's that twist ending of sorts. I know that M night Shyamalan owns the twist ending, but, <laughs> but well, the, what's fascinating is I think in the film where we see, what we believe where Billy shoots Scott Wood and then shoots himself. And we get like the, the blood coming out of the back of their heads and you get like their weird distorted face Billy has when he shoots himself in the jaw. And then we get going back again to that uh, device that Gallo uses of like that memory thought bubble. And it's his fucking parents, uh, presumably at his grave site. And, yeah. the, you know, and the mom is like yelling about the bills game. She's listening to right. on the radio. And, and, and again, noticeably like in gray and white, it's, it's again, mm -hmm. very overcast, very Buffalo. The, the most Buffalo thing that you could possibly do would be to be caring about a Bills game during your son's burial. By the way, even in death, he realizes even in death, he will be overshadowed by the Bills, ultimately. Mm -hmm. By the way, Scott Norwood is now 60 years old. At the time, would have been in his late 30s. They do. They did him dirty. Yeah, they did him dirty. They he's, did. He's, he's only a year in. older than Vincent Gallo. I, <laughs> I know, treading in ageism, lookism. He's like, let's just make him the most. You know, use all of the, mm -hmm. you know, make him unattractive, make him overweight, and make him older and balding because we really want to just characterize him as being the worst person that we wouldn't feel bad if he were to be shot in cold blood, <laughs> surrounded by surrounded by dancers. But yeah, so why does he elect to do that? Again, this is, it's his own, right? I think, Jim, kind of that characterization of this being, we could maybe view it and frame it as his kind of revenge fantasy film against the city of Buffalo, mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, <laughs> and no. Living, I, and coming to terms with it. And knowing that even in death, his parents would care more about the bills than grieving him, right? That becomes his kind of, yeah, that's, that was really, Angelica Houston, her performance is one of my favorite things in the film. Oh, she's absolutely top notch, and yeah, I I think that like so so we get past the the murder suicide, and we show that that's just a dream sequence and that and that doesn't happen, and I think like like I mentioned like this is his killing buffalo, um, getting rid of this exercising this demon from his his past, and um. He he's trying to show that he doesn't need to kill Buffalo. He's better than that. He can just move on by himself. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's like he's even there. He's like, 
actually, I'm not going to sink to Buffalo's level by buffaloing this, right? <laughs> right. In a murder suicide, I will, I will just rise above and buy my new lady friend a hot chocolate that she so rightfully <laughs> deserves after being kidnapped from Dickie's Donuts. Dickie's Let's donuts. all be a little nostalgic for dis- right. Dickie's Donuts right now. Yes, yes. I mean, I think it's notable that ultimately in that dream sequence, what keeps him from doing it is he realizes that there's nothing that he can do to win back his mother's love. Like, I think that's the subtext of it that even like he can't undo the, the 1990 Super Bowl. And after that, you know, he walks out of the club and he, he gets on the phone, he calls back goon Rocky, you know, whatever. And previously had given away all his earthly possessions from his his locker and then tells him, oh, you can't have them. You can't have them. Goon, they're mine. You're not taking my stuff. Um, and I, I think he realizes that like, and he and even says in that, like, well, you know, Scott, what the bills, the bills were bad that year. They, uh, you know, they, they, Scott would want him a lot of games. They wouldn't have even made it to the Super Bowl that year without right. him. Um, it's true. <laughs> you know, so it's like realizing that there is nothing that he could do to undo that moment in his life and to move on from it. And even even if he did it, even if he got like the ultimate revenge, his mother would just be like, oh, yeah, whatever. I don't care. Right. <laughs> right. His kind of narcissism on full display of, you know, really what he would want is his mom to, of course, grieve him. But he knows in actuality she's stunted. She's stuck in 1966 slash 1991, depending on how you, you know, do the periodization. And but it is interesting. Like the title of the film is Buffalo 66, which it's so funny because I I remember being confused by that title when it first came out. I didn't really understand how to place it. And I thought, like, is it taking place in 1966? But it, it has this idea of the city being stunted to a degree and however we want to frame or view that. Mm-hmm. And, right, that he can just sort of but it's all about, I think, his you know inner child wounding. And I mean, even when he's in the bathtub, it's like he's the sad little boy, right? He's a sad little boy on the bed and like, you know, he needs to be emotionally rehabilitated by a woman who doesn't get the multidimensional treatment she deserves. I know he's hating what I'm saying, you know, right? But uh, so, but at the same yeah, time, but he's trash. So who movie, cares? Right? I don't think, you know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I thought I said he's trash. So who cares about him? I mean, yeah, I just am like, you know, can I think it's when you? I have a respect for kind of the. It's going to sound so pretentious, but for the artistry, like I have a respect for that that scene and and everything, and it's. He's as talented as he is problematic, and I don't think I'm losing any of my feminist cred by saying that I still return to this film, but and I and I push back against it. But yeah, I think. But again, but Angelica Houston, she just in a way she is this like comic relief too, right? She right. does function in that in that sense, even in, as this kind of you know demonized mother figure. She's still like you know there's something about there's just something so funny about about that moment even at the gravesite like there's just the kind of gallows humor to it no no pun intended with Vincent Gallo but gallows humor and yeah so then he decides to to rise above and it's clearly something he's felt that he's done in relation to Buffalo but he also still needs Buffalo it's such a part of his story mm-hmm. yeah for sure I mean the way that Buffalo is framed in this movie and you know, to even put it in the title, as you mentioned, um, that Buffalo, uh, that aside from the Bills Super Bowl run, which notably they don't in the film, they don't actually put like years to it. So this movie, even though we know in actual life when that happened, Buffalo 66, we're talking how this movie had such a 70s film to it. 
for me watching it, it might as well have been in like 1966 or something. Like mm-hmm. it's completely like separated, even though it ha- it happened in 1998, like the Buffalo of 1998 might as well, the, the commentary it feels like is it might, might as well have been in 1966 and nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And the kind of Buffalo resurgence Renaissance narrative, you know, is well off. And I remember when it came to development of the inner Harbor and anything to do with anything changing, I had a hard time even believing that canal side was going to actually produce anything economically, anything vibrant, anything culturally. I just, I think everyone in Buffalo was so used to just so much talk about so many capital projects, not materializing. I even think about the late nineties. It was all about building a second bridge, like by the peace bridge and that Western New York, the Buffalo needed a signature bridge that this was going to be the thing. Like it needed a signature bridge, not a twin span. I don't know if y'all remember this, but it was like, Front page Buffalo News. No, I I, I, I remember yeah. this distinctly that the like the argument whether it was signature bridge versus twin span, and <laughs> you know like you had like like the government DOT just like well we'll just do a twin span like it's just be easier to just do a second bridge, and you had like certain civic leaders like no we need to have our own Golden Gate. <laughs> That does not match the Peace Bridge, which will look so weird. And you're just like, what is the right. what is the deal here? But yeah, that was very. And then, and then of course, nine eleven happens. A lot of things change at the border, and the priority then is no longer, you know, the aesthetics of a proposed bridge. But it's it's just it's so interesting. But yeah, this idea of Buffalo, you know, kind of being behind on trends or just but. I think kind of owning what the city is and and I don't like people. I really try to stay grounded in the city of no illusions ethos because I I think I get a little saddened and disheartened when people try to make it a city that it's not and try to kind of puff it up and be like, Oh, it could be like Boston or something. It's like, no, we don't, it's a, it's a, a, for a city of its size, it's unique. It has a lot going for it. And I, my grandmother had a phrase, uh, grandmother O'Sullivan, she would say that the O'Sullivans keep the skeletons on the front porch. I feel like Buffalo keeps the skeletons on the front porch. Like there's no like hidden, you know, underbelly. Everyone just, all the problems are out there. Like, and I, I really appreciate that about the city that it's not pretending for the most part. I mean, except for a few civic leaders here and there, right? right. That for the most part, maybe some folks are into historic preservation, but like, which is great. Historic preservation is fine. But sometimes you'll kind of get this narrative that's a little bit more distorted about the negative aspects of the city. So, and and you don't want an overly distorted, an overly negative uh, distortion either. But so, you know, that's kind of how I think of Buffalo and what I think the city has a lot to be proud of is the honesty about that. And just kind of like, even with this film, just kind of owning that, like, yeah, it's cold, it's like winter, we're defined by the Super Bowl loss. But I don't know, to me, it just, it gives it such a unique, a unique feel versus, I mean, look at Pittsburgh. It's a Rust Belt City with six Super Bowl championships, and they have no character, obviously. Uh, right, right. <laughs> Fuck you, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Take, take your sandwiches right. with your french fries on them and yeah. get the hell out of oh, here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, in starting to think of Buffalo in 1998. So at that point, you know, the Sabres were on the cusp of, they had a Stanley cup appearance, you know, finals appearance that next year. Mm-hmm. So then it was no longer wide, right. Then it was no goal. See, we have other two word long slogans for, <laughs> right. We, we had, we had other tragic sports failures. Right. Exactly. Then, Oh, music city miracle. Oof. 
So that was 99, almost 2000. It was a playoff game. So I think it was January 2000. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's, which for years I was like, that was a, that was a forward pass friends. I'm pretty sure it wasn't, but that's how it felt emotionally. It's it's amazing that we're still like defined by football traumas, even as we're talking about this movie that Vincent Gallo uses the device of, you know, his, 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 his character in a way and his mother to be defined by his football trauma. And here we are today um, talking about further sports trauma. Right. And, it's, it, and like, we're a group of like smart, educated, like thoughtful people, people who like might do well at Jeopardy, where notably people who uh, do well in Jeopardy don't do well at the sports questions. And here we are with Buffalo defining ourselves by like, well, here's our sports failures. Oh, yeah. And I wear a Buffalo Bills mask, as one does, and out in public here. And now it's been a shift because when people would see I have a Bills bumper sticker on my car, you know, my phone case, you know, has has the Bills logo and everything. And previously, people would comment on it with a kind of pitying tone. Mm -hmm. They would be like, oh, you're a Bills fan? Like, that's sad. Or like, you know, a commentary on Bills Mafia antics, right? That was more exciting than the on-field play for a few years. But now it's shifted. Now people are like, oh, wow, you're a Bills fan. This Josh Allen kid's really shaping up for you. So so that's been an interesting interesting (laughs) shift. But it's this famous fan base. And I've actually been interviewed when I was, it was from a student, an interview with a student from the University of Colorado. But I was living in Vermont at the time. And because I, you know, got my PhD out at CU and he interviewed me as a Bills Mafia member, I guess we could call ourselves a membership organization. And it was just their take and kind of fascination with us was so interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, no, no, I mean, the Bills Mafia thing, I think I said this on this podcast has been like in the last like 20 years has been the like most notable, good grassroots thing that's come out of buffalo it's also terrible because like like it it involves like throwing each other through tables but it's still like has generated more goodwill um towards the city than just about anything else that's happened in the last 20 years and it's a shame that the pagulas are trying to trademark it Ugh, and I would say, oh, I know that's just so that feels so, so wrong. And my first Bills game actually was in December of 1998. So a nice bookend for this experience. And Doug Flutie was a quarterback, the quarterback controversy between he and Rob Johnson was raging on because I don't know, Rob Johnson was tall. And that was really important to a lot of Buffalonians, mm-hmm. not wins. They were like, but Rob Johnson, he's tall. Here's the thing. He's, he's tall. That was like the crux of it. The support for Rob Johnson at the time. But yeah, and it was like a cold December game against the Jets. And But my other argument too is that, of course, with the advent of smartphones and this kind of ability to get high quality recordings and social media, I mean, the actual violence at the stadium in 1998 was unreal. I mean, the games have gotten a lot more family friendly in the past 20 plus years. It's oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, 1998, like I said, I was like a sophomore in college. I remember going to those games and like we were fucking monsters. <laughs> and so like the game, like the experience is tamed down. It's just that like they're filming the antics now. It's, right. it's it's kind of like like if you look at the numbers, like it's actually much safer to be a cop nowadays than it was in the seventies. Like we used to kill cops a lot more, <laughs> right? And like the number of deaths at Bills games, you know, have gone down precipitously. I'm sure, right? Like, you know, 
you know. Yeah. But yeah, I think I don't think Vincent Gallo. I would say as a as it relates to Bills fandom, you know, I don't I don't see him wearing a Bills hat or a Bills mask. I don't see him no. parading around in this way. No, I, I don't think he's no got way. a Josh Allen jersey on that he's. He's just totally no. Wrong. So no, at, not at all. As we wrap up here, guys, just some final thoughts about the movie. Um, I think we can argue whether or not the, well, one, whether or not the, the end of the movie where we see Billy and Layla, you know, cuddling or holding each other, if that, if that's actually happened, like, I, I don't know, like we, we see it, but we don't actually know if, if Billy ends up with Layla, but let, let's just assume for the sake of argument that he does whether or not he earns this happy ending after being just such a miserable prick. Oh, of course not. Throughout the movie. <laughs> he doesn't earn shit. For no. sure. For sure. <laughs> but I mean, I guess this film for me is like emblematic of just like both this low, like the self-loathing and also like, I, I said like, as I watched this again last night, I was thinking to myself like Vincent Gallo is the most like Joker meme sharing person I could ever like, he's so complicated. You wouldn't understand me and I'm so twisted, but also I deserve love. <laughs> right. Literally like he's too deep for us all. The depths of his emotional pain, his intellectual prowess, his actual like physical endowment, apparently, I don't know. Right. And it's just, it's narcissism full tilt, but it's like worth a watch. And of course I have the bias of somebody who's from Buffalo, but to, obviously for folks who have no affiliation with the region, still critics still rank this as one of the best independent films because of these innovative storytelling techniques but as far as like the perspective and the actual viewpoint he puts on display, I I have not gained any more sympathy or empathy for <laughs> for Billy Brown. But again, but when you first watch it, and again, it has to do with what was happening culturally at the time, what my position was, is I was like, oh, this mean guy, like I guess things kind of worked out for him, right? It's like what I thought at the time. <laughs> I just put but, together, by the way, his name is Billy. Right, he's named it for yeah. the Bills. Yes. I watched this movie two times, and I've been talking about it for almost two hours, and I just put together his name is fucking Billy. Yeah, no, he's named it for the Bills, obviously. Last name Brown. Yeah. And the Cleveland Browns, right. The two, <laughs> right. The, two, the, the two NFL teams most noted for losses, right? right. And, you know, ah, oh, Cleveland. So I don't, I don't want to pick on Cleveland either, but... but uh, no, I yeah. mean, Cleveland's... Uh, they got a championship now with the Cavaliers. It's true. And... and and for a lot of folks in Buffalo, it, to me, it had that kind of, okay, maybe one day too. That was right. the, the lesson I took from it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, I felt the same thing with like, you know, I mean, I am a Cubs fan, but when the Cubs finally broke through in 2016, besides the fact that I actually fell to my knees and started crying at my apartment, um, <laughs> I thought like, maybe this could one day happen to somebody in Buffalo. Like maybe this actually could come through and like, I'm not a Chicago sports fan. So like, obviously Chicago sports, like they had the bulls, the bears won the Super Bowl in 85. Um, the Blackhawks. Blackhawks. Yeah. They always win Stanley Cups on a regular basis. Seemingly. Right. You know, um, so it's, it's, it was just like this one particular team in Chicago that sucked. Um, I mean, but they did it. had this kind of curse over it, right? Right. Well, they, I mean, they did it right. at a historic level. Like, they went from 1904 to 2016 before they won another World Series. I mean, that's that's a 112 years is a pretty long gap. 
Right. It's like we can deal with from 1966 to, you know, hopefully this winding this this curse ending soon for Buffalo, which I mean, we're in the upside down right now. The Bills are doing quite <laughs> well at the top of the AFC East. And I mean, all that's happening, depression and a pandemic. So, you know, it just makes sense. It aligns perfectly. Right. No, I mean, uh, I, I assume that what will happen is that the NFL won't cancel the uh, the Steelers Ravens game this weekend. And then the Steelers will all get COVID, and then they'll have to forfeit like three games, and the Bills will end up being the number one seed. Oh yeah, it, it just it will make perfect sense. And Vincent Gallo will hate every minute of it, and that's right. the best part. Oh, he'll be livid. <coughs> well, I think. I, any, any closing thoughts here, guys? As we as we move to wrap um, up, I think I think just we'll just wrap it up. I think the closing thoughts have been done. I think you know, uh, Shannon. Where can people reach you on Twitter? Uh, at Shannon O'Sully. So my name without the apostrophe, Twitter doesn't allow it, of course. Mm-hmm. So at Shannon O'Sully. And yeah, that's pretty much it. You'll just get a lot of politics and pop culture content. So if you're into that, and if you're into me retweeting AOC on occasion, come on over. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. How about you guys give drop your socials? Again? Uh, I am at James Tamil, T as in Thomas, M as in Michael uh, on the Twitter uh, again, just like Shannon, lots of retweets, very few original ideas, but mostly retweets, especially AOC. Same here. <laughs> I've got a few original ideas sprinkled in at the real Ryan Steele. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing that. You guys it'd be a cold day in hell before I give out my social media. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thanks again for, thank you, Shannon, for a great episode. Well, you're our pop culture uh, expert that we'll bring in for certain episodes. Yes. Happy, happy to serve. It's been wonderful to talk about this, and I will gladly talk about any Buffalo-based pop culture content at any time. <laughs> Thanks awesome. so much. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks. Have a good week, All right. everyone. All right. Bye, guys.